Hey, everybody. Welcome to Clark Talks, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Damien Pizzanti. And I'm Katie Gillespie. How y'all doing out there? Hope you're doing well. I'm doing pretty well. How are you, Katie? I'm hanging in there. Big things happening around the Colombian lately. Yeah, we got some big changes. Uh, If you're a longtime listener of uh, Clark Talks, you're also probably a loyal reader of the paper. At least we hope so. At least we hope so. And if you're not, subscribe. Yeah. (laughs) Do that. Um, Anyway, our uh, fearless leader, Lou Brancaccio, is retiring midway through next month after more than 20 years here at the Colombian. Yeah, a big figure in not only the Around the Newsroom... Uh, I would say probably around the around town and Definitely. around the community as well. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, th- that'll be a big change for us. Yeah, and there's always you know there's always some some transitional logistical headaches that come with changes with an yeah. editor. I fortunately have not until now not been in a newsroom where that has happened, but I um, mm-hmm. know that that can be kind of a a stressful experience for for reporters as things as you go through change. And um, but we're actually it sounds like our transition is going to be pretty smooth here. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think a an editor really sets the tone for a publication totally. and really helps drive the focus of what is covered and what isn't. Yeah. But yeah, I think, like you said, it's it sounds like it's going to transition pretty well. And I think to the credit of the editors that are around here, it sounds like it, I think it shows that everybody's on the same page as what the vision for the publication is. Definitely. So, so Craig Brown, who is currently the Metro editor, will be moving into sort of a, I don't know, what do we even describe it as? Because he's not going to be the editor-in-chief officially. He's like the news... He's the news captain. <laughs> yeah, he's... Well, he, God, he's like the editor of everything. Yeah. Managing editor, editor editor extraordinaire. I don't I don't know what to call it. Yeah. But anyway, Craig Brown is going to be... Are. He's going to be running the show. And so um, I've heard him... He, it sounds like he's got some good plans for um, even some like little tweaks and changes he wants to do in the newsroom. So I'm, Great. Op- I'm optimistic. Great. But anyway, so we actually brought Lou in to have a conversation with him, you know, about his career and uh, the newspaper business at large and um, just his experiences at the Columbia. And it's pretty interesting. I think you guys want to check it out. And then, um, as per the usual now, we are going to be talking with Ashley Swanson, who is our weekend events extraordinaire. And she's weekend gonna, queen. The weekend queen. Weekend queen Ashley Swanson. <laughs> That's good. But she's going to give you guys a lowdown on all the good things coming up this weekend. And it's Art Week in Clark County, as you will hear from her. And there's tons of good stuff going on. So stay tuned and check it out. Okay, so we're sitting down with uh, the Colombian's editor-in-chief, Lou Brancaccio, this week to talk a little bit about what's next for him. He announced his, uh, I mean, what are we calling it retirement? Like, what are we calling it? Hey, that's that's good for me. Uh, uh, I'll be uh, writing a monthly uh, column and stay on the uh, editorial board, uh, but... Yeah, I'm retiring from being editor. Was, did I hear you call it uh, editor emeritus last week? Is that do I remember that right? Yeah, this is uh, very similar to what happened when uh, Tom Kenniger retired back in 2001, and when I became uh, the editor, uh, he continued a column. Uh, he stayed on the editorial board, and uh, he took the editor emeritus uh, title as well. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, thanks a lot for coming on and talking with us. Uh, just, I wanted to see if we could just overview a little bit about your time at the Columbian, and then even some of your like reporting past, because you've been a you were a lifetime journalist, right? Full career. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I have been. I uh, walked into the editor's office in Fort Myers, Florida, in 1975 uh, as a beginning reporter. I uh, I still remember the conversation today. He said, uh, the editor said, uh, how much uh, did we hire you on for? And I said, um, $140 a week. And he paused for about five seconds, and he said, I think you're worth more than that. I'm going to give you $150 a week. Nice. And when I said thank you, he said, don't thank me. I expect you to earn that ten dollars more a week and that's always really sort of stuck with me mm-hmm. uh it was a and a very uh a moving moment uh, uh for me because of from then on as a uh, beginning reporter and throughout my career i'd always felt that uh whatever 
uh, I was uh, making, uh, I had to earn it. Um, when you were when you were in a <clears throat> reporter role, I mean, talk about some of the highlights of being a reporter and some any fond memories in particular, or big stories that you worked on, or um, just anything that really stands out for you now. Uh, well, uh, one of my uh, favorite stories uh, was when I was a reporter in a bureau uh, for the Fort Myers News Press, and I had been going after a, a sheriff who was involved in more shenanigans than he should be. And I was only there for about uh, eight or nine months, but I was doing uh, quite a bit in terms of stories and exposing some, some things that were happening. And the main office, which obviously didn't know me that well, I'd only started eight months ago, the main office was a little bit uh, concerned that I might be over my head mm-hmm. on this story, and we had two investigative reporters down at the main office. And so they sent an investigative reporter down to see how I was doing with the intent that uh, if he felt after examining how I was doing for a few days that they would give that story over to the uh, our investigative team uh, in Fort Myers. That wasn't unusual back then to have a story pulled out from under you uh, by a reporter with more experience. But after three days, the uh, reporter, who is still a good friend of mine, uh, reported back to me and then to the main office and said, hey, you got this thing. Uh, I'm going to go back and tell them that uh, you know what you're doing and and uh, you're on your own. Uh, the edi- the uh, sheriff ended up uh, not being reelected, and his name happened to be uh, Jack Bent. Nobody will know that name. But what I remember was because back then, and of course, it's back to the future. Reporters, because I was in a bureau, we were taking photos, and so on election day. Uh, I uh, I figured out where he was going to be voting, and there was this long line of people outside the polling place, and the sheriff was at the end of that line, and I took a photo with him at the end of the line, and I still remember uh, the cut line, end of the line for Bent, <laughs> and uh, that was his name. And, Worked um, out well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that that was one of my one of my favorite stories. Huh. For people that may or may not know, you you've worked all over the place, right? Like you've you we were in Vancouver for twenty years, just a little over twenty years, and Florida is obviously plays a big role in your history. But uh, maybe if you can give everybody a quick overview of like the dynamics where you've been. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, this it was more normal, I think, back uh, when I began for. Uh, journalists move around. I don't think it's that uh, as normal anymore. Uh, I think I mentioned this when I was speaking to the newsroom when I announced uh, my retirement as editor. That my my guess is that maybe 90 or 95 percent of the people in our newsroom right now are from the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm from Florida. Uh, well, I started my career in Florida. I'm actually from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I went to the University of Florida. It has a, a great uh, journalism school and went to the University of Florida and graduated from there. And so I started my career out in uh, Florida as a uh, bureau reporter, as I noted. Then I uh, moved to the main office eventually, uh, eventually became an assistant metro editor, then a metro editor, uh, and then the managing editor there. And so I spent uh, 13 years at the uh, at a paper called the News Press in Fort Myers. Uh, but then it was time to move on because, as journalists did back then, and of course the business was a much different animal than it is today. A much healthier animal. A, yeah. Yes, a much yeah, that's exactly right. But because of that, it allowed uh, reporters uh, and editors. To move around because that was really the way that you progressed in this field. You either moved to a larger newspaper as a reporter, or you moved up at that newspaper uh, into management, or you moved to other newspapers as a management. And um, I took that route. I uh, tell folks that uh, you know you're either somebody who uh, 
believe strongly in roots and you plant yourself or you believe in the adventure. And, you know, I ended up as a journalist who believed in the adventure. So after growing up in Chicago and working in uh, Florida for 13 years, uh, I moved to uh, upstate New York as uh, as an editor, uh, then down to uh, Santa Monica, California as an editor, and then eventually up to here uh, as an editor. So I tell people that I've worked in the four corners of the United States, and I grew up in Chicago. Um, in between, I went on a trip with USA Today that uh, went to every state in the country over a six-month uh, period. Uh, so it's fair to say I've been around. Yeah, I would say so. Um, give me your perspective on this. But Craig told me that before you got here, this was quite a bit different, or this newspaper was quite a bit different uh, before you came in. How, does, how has the paper evolved in 20-some years? Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know exactly what to say about the the structuring of the paper. You know, I'm, I'm sort of a believer that uh, an editor an editor's main job is to sort of set goalposts and then to have the uh, staff work between those uh, goalposts. And you have to decide how wide or how narrow those uh, goalposts are. And I guess I would say that when I got here, the goalposts were really, really, really wide. And I just tried to tighten those goalposts up uh, the, the, uh, it just needed a little bit more uh, form and function, mm -hmm. uh, a little I, bit more focus. Are you talking like in terms of the stories that were being reported and the beats that were being covered, or and and also just the way the newspaper was uh, was set up, the way things were sort of done. I remember when uh, when I first got here, when the when the fair came to town, uh, essentially the uh, entire local cover was just reporting on the fair. And when I got here, I said, um, well, what about, you know, the rest of the news that's going on? I mean, I, I get that the fair is a big deal, and, and today we still cover it and should still cover it. Mm -hmm. It almost always has a local cover uh, uh, lead or even a front page lead, at least in art. Uh, but it was so concentrated on on covering the fair that it surprised me that uh, essentially everything else was sort of shutting down while the newspaper uh, covered the fair. Hmm. And so I said, you know, I, I, it's important to cover the fair, but it's not the only thing that's going on, and we need to cover the rest of the news yeah. that's here. And that's sort of an example of the sort of what needed to happen. We also went to a true daily at that point, right? Well, uh, before I got here, we were a six-day-a-week uh, afternoon newspaper, and, and I pushed uh, for it to become a morning uh, newspaper. And when once you uh, pushed for it to become a morning newspaper, at least back then, the thought was, well, you can't be a six-day-a-week newspaper. So then we created uh, a Saturday edition. Uh, so, yeah, so it... it became a seven-day-a-week uh, uh, morning newspaper under under my watch. So what was the drive to make it a daily uh, morning daily as opposed to an afternoon? What is the difference in quality of the type of product that you think you're going to be able to deliver to the readership? Well, I, I don't know that I would argue that there is a, a qualitative uh, difference. Mm -hmm. There is a timing uh, difference, and back then, uh, beginning of this century around uh, 2000 uh, you know back then uh, ever uh, afternoon newspapers were dying yeah I mean it's interesting that we talk we're talking quite a bit today about the delivery of news and the timing of news because back then essentially before uh, social media was there mm -hmm. uh, the idea of delivering a, a newspaper to a doorstep at two or three or four o'clock in the afternoon uh, wasn't making much sense because the advent of TV, you know, 50 years earlier and radio, mm -hmm. uh, there was a feeling that readers didn't have the need 
for an afternoon newspaper because when they got home and sat down after work, uh, they were turning on the national news and turning turning on the local news mm -hmm. and getting a lot of that news. And by the time they were reading the print newspaper, all that stuff was old. Sure. And so you really had to evolve away from um, an afternoon newspaper if you wanted to, to survive back then. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we did. Mm-hmm. I think that's even still true. Just when I think of myself as a news consumer, I'm much more likely to read the pa read the news in the morning. It's like my my paper and my coffee. That's the way I start. Yeah, and that's why, you know, there are always struggles between editors and circulation directors when they're trying to move deadlines. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is, because of social media, that issue isn't as critical as it used to be before social media. Mm -hmm. You know, but the idea that circulation rightfully would push to get that newspaper on people's doorsteps before they went to work sure uh on occasion butts up against well we've got a late story that we've got to cover which would yeah push potentially push the delivery of that paper to after somebody had already gone to work so you're you were always trying to uh you know create that uh happy medium uh today uh because we have social media and because we have the internet, uh, n newspapers have acknowledged that the idea of having that very late story in the paper, although important, isn't essential or critical because you could just get it online. And as more and more people become comfortable with getting their news online, uh, the idea of having to have it uh, in the print product it, it isn't quite as critical. What do you think have been some big challenges other than what, what we just talked about um, with how rapidly this industry is changing and some of the, the direction that this industry is taking? Um, what have been some, for you, some big challenges and some big changes that have struck you? Well, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Back uh, before social media existed, uh, the newsroom was responsible for news. And the circulation department was responsible for delivery. But when you think about it, the newsroom is becoming more and more responsible for delivery as well. Uh, and that's a big challenge to get that right. I get that. But I think one of the most important things we have to remember as journalists uh, is that you can't be consumed by delivery. Uh, we do it. We get it. We understand how... To deliver it, this podcast is a new vehicle of being able to deliver news. I get how important that is. But if journalists forget that what's really important is the news, it's not how you deliver that news, but is the news, uh, then we're going to be uh, in a lot more trouble than uh, we think we're in. You know, I've had that same thought myself because you you hear more and more publications that want their writers to focus on producing stories that are going to generate a lot of clicks and a lot of traffic online, and um, it's just heartbreaking for me to think that that is the direction that we're headed in because you know there are so many stories that are very important but they're not going to go viral or they're not going to get a million clicks like something that's a little more sensationalist would be, and I think that very often that. The core news is often like, you know, it's important, but I think for a lot of people, it's kind of like eating their vegetables. I think that there's a certain section of people that are really concerned about that and really want to read it. But then there are others <clears throat> that, while it's important, they may not be as likely to look into it. And, you know, that media consumption is a whole different animal. But I really hope that in, when I think about the future of this industry, the journalists don't stray from that, that core responsibility we have to the public. Right. And, and, and actually, you hit on what I would call a subset of the point that we were talking about, because uh, we were talking about this uh, idea of spending time figuring out how to deliver news and spending time to get really good news. And the subset that you just hit on was as you're spending time on how to deliver the news, you're also rearranging your frontal lobe to figure out what exactly is news, which is slightly different than how to deliver news. Mm -hmm. But now you're saying not only is 
the delivery uh, consuming time, but we're also altering the kind of news that we're doing to satisfy this new age delivery of the news. And we do have to be uh, careful with that. And and frankly, I mean, we see it uh, uh, a lot in the number of hits that we get on our website and social media. I mean, I you know, I look at the uh, report that uh, we generate every day in terms of what people are looking at on the website. And it's very difficult to break into that top 10 website views if you're doing what I would call traditional real journalism. Uh, you know, it's all cop news and cats. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. It's, and it's hard, it's very difficult uh, uh, to break into that. Uh, so we, we, we do have to be cautious about not, you know, just spending our time on the things that will generate clicks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so in light of all these changes that we've been talking about a little bit, do you think the role of the um, community newspaper is going to go away, or do you think it's going to lose any of its significance in the coming years? Well, I don't think it's going to lose any of its significance. And I don't think it's going to go away. I guess I probably would have asked that question a little bit uh, uh, differently um, because I think even though fewer and fewer readers, and this trend has been going on since 1960, but even though fewer and fewer readers are picking up the newspaper, um, I think those people who do pick up the newspaper still see it as being significant and still see it as being uh, uh, critical to the importance of communities. The problem is as that pot dwindles of uh, people who are engaged in newspapers and what, and what newspapers and our website, what we do, um, I, I do have a concern uh, that the community might be might ultimately move in sort of directions that aren't good for it. And in a very real way, you know, I think communities have goalposts uh, that have to be set up as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got to sort of stay on a path, not on a narrow path, but you still have to stay on a path. And one of the things that newspapers do when they're doing their job right is they recognize that path. And when politicians or businessmen or other people, you know, move in a completely different uh, uh, direction. It's our job to point that out. Mm -hmm. So we're going to always have that role. I think it will always be critical. But I think you'd be a fool to think that uh, what we are doing isn't reaching as many people as we want it to be or, frankly, what would be important Mm -hmm. for us to be able to reach. Our audience is... um, is dwindling. It clearly is growing on the social media side. That's important and that's good. Uh, but the dollars haven't followed uh, mm-hmm. us on social media. So even when you start combining our social media readers with our print readers, uh, the numbers look better and they are better. Uh, but what what's going to sustain us financially? if those dollars don't follow us uh, to social media. Yeah, unfortunately, Facebook doesn't pay. No, No. it doesn't. Um, One thing that's been a real hallmark of your time here, especially in the last few years, has been um, your your columns on Former Clark County Councilors Dave Medore, Tom Milkey, former Senator Don Benton, now of the of the EPA. Um, what can you talk about that a little bit? And and this is this is the first newspaper that I've worked at where the editor in chief has has taken um, such a, a consistent role in in political column writing. Um, and Warren, I haven't been in many newspapers, but um, why why have you felt like that's been important in your time here? Um, and, and what do you think your columns contributed to the overall community conversation about some strong personalities uh, in our local political scene? Uh, the, you know, good question. And, and, uh, and you know, I know and uh, you know that the uh, strong opinions that I've uh, uh, taken probably both, well, not probably, both internally and externally has uh, created um, 
uh, issues. And, uh, you know, I get that. Uh, you know, I get that uh, there are uh, folks who believe that um, the editor shouldn't take uh, strong political views. But if you, if you think about it, if you really think about it, uh, many editors, frankly, most editors sit on editorial boards. Now, it's anonymous. So when we write an editorial, it's the Colombian's view, but that Colombian view comes from those people who sit on the editorial board. I sit on the editorial board here, and as noted, most, uh, most editors at newspapers, not all, but most, also sit on the editorial board. So they're voicing strong opinions uh, about various uh, politicians and goings-on in the community. And there's some strangeness to the idea that that's okay because we don't really know it's him because an editorial is anonymous. But it's not okay because I know it's him. Just cutting out the middleman is <laughs> kind of... <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and so, uh, honestly, for me, I think it's sort of... Um, it's sort of non. It's a nonsensical uh, argument. Uh, editors wear more than one hat. Uh, when they sit on the editorial board, they put on their opinion hat and they voice uh, strong opinions. Uh, when they're out in the newsroom overseeing uh, journalists, uh, they put on their news hat and they don't voice those strong opinions. So it was. So if anything, it was just a an exposure of light that basically says, yeah. Editors have opinions, and uh, and I do now. You know, it, clearly my uh, columns have taken strong uh, political stances. You know, but I think that I just felt like it was important uh, to do it. We, you know, we have uh, Greg Jane writes an excellent column as the editorial page editor, but we didn't really have, and a lot of newspapers have this. We really didn't have a local. Uh, columnist uh, the Oregonian has one excellent uh, columnist most at least larger newspapers uh, have one my hero is uh, Mike Royko uh, you know he was he didn't he, his column didn't sit on the editorial page and I, oh by the way I note that because I've had you know people who have said well your column should be on the editorial page I mean newspapers traditionally have had opinion columns on news pages. It happens all the time. Mike Royko uh, was one of them. So I, I grew up on Mike Royko and grew up on knowing the uh, importance of voicing a strong opinion when you believe that there are things awry uh, with, in the community or with politicians. And so I felt very comfortable uh, in doing it. And the, uh, and the heat that I took uh, I mean, I, mean I, I just accepted it uh, because, again, I think people can wear two hats, do wear two hats, and editors are one of those uh, folks who do that. Uh, tell me if I'm getting too abstract here, but um, in the, the some of the news that we've had in the past week, um, uh, being Steve Bannon saying that the media needs to just shut up some of the issues of transparency in the Trump administration. Um, I think that there's been, you know, obviously we're a local newspaper, but um, I think there's been a lot of self-reflection and discussion about what are journalists going to be in the next four years? What's our role in this in this kind of new world that we're in? Um, I mean, can you speak to that a little bit and why journalists are so important and why we will continue to be important and how how we can be a part of this, uh, I'm getting too weird now, but how we can, <laughs> how we can continue to move forward as, as there seems to be this really growing opposition toward journalists and the media as a whole. Yeah, I wonder if uh, it is growing or not. I th and it probably is, but I've been around long enough to know that politicians just don't like journalists um, they don't like being held accountable, and and frankly, you know, I think you, I'll get a little abstract. Um, I think that ever since the Soviet Union went away, uh, journalists have become the number one target. So what am I talking about? Politicians 
need enemies. Uh, if we didn't have enemies, if politicians didn't have enemies, they would invent enemies. Uh, the Soviet Union was the whipping dog for U.S. politicians for decades because they were the evil red empire. When the Soviet Union went away, uh, politicians needed to find a new enemy, a and the media was uh, an easy whipping dog. It's not that we weren't uh, viewed poorly by politicians before the collapse of the Soviet Union, but it intensified after the Soviet Union collapsed uh, because they quickly needed to run against somebody or something. And you will see a lot of politicians who run against uh, the media. And that's really what's going on uh, today with uh, President Trump uh, and his minions. Uh, they uh, need uh, an enemy, and the media is it. Uh, how important are we to continue to be the watchdogs um, of the United States? Well, I can't think of anything more important. I mean, I think if uh, reputable journalists and people who work at newspapers are reputable journalists, I think if reputable journalists go away, I think uh, democracy is in trouble. I mean, it's. I mean, that might sound bold, but I mean, I think it uh, is. I think it's true, which sort of dovetails back into this other point that I was talking about. We can't be spending half our time trying to figure out the best method to deliver news. We have to be spending the majority of our time, particularly because our resources are dwindling and the, the, the number of uh, reporters are uh, were decreasing. Um, we have to be watchdogs uh, to this uh, community. I am heartened, and I'm sure you guys are too when you write uh, stories uh, that uh, people get enraged over. Uh, I am heartened by the number of uh, readers that I hear from, not only about the stories that we do. Uh, Katie, you did a bunch of great stories uh, that held our uh, county commissioners and county counselors uh, to expose them. Uh, so I'm heartened when I hear from readers about that. I'm heartened when I hear from uh, readers who uh, say nice things uh, about my column when I write about uh, those things. So, you know, those are the things that are important uh, to hold community members responsible, to continue to be a, a watchdog, and uh, to expose wrongdoing. Those are core values that... I, I think are the most important things that we need to continue to do. Mm -hmm. So as you, as you're at this point where you're uh, you know walking away from the publication, I don't I don't want to necessarily say walking away because you obviously still are going to be involved, but maybe stepping back as you are. Um, are there? What is your hope for the way that the paper, the type of news that the paper is going to report? Journalists have to. Our journalists have to keep their ear to the ground, their eyes wide open. Their observational skills have to be uh, keen. Uh, you know, we've got to not let uh, uh, friendships and associations influence uh, what we are doing. Uh, so I wouldn't say that I have a, a, a specific uh, story that we, you know, have to get on. Mm -hmm. I would say that let's see what is in tomorrow's newspaper and let's see what we have to do. Which brings up, uh, I think, a, an important point as far as I'm concerned. You know, I always believe, and I've said this to journalists who have asked me, that the first question isn't what's important when you're interviewing somebody. It's the follow-up question. And by that I mean that sometimes we have uh, a great idea as to what a great question would be to potentially expose something that's going on. 
And we asked that question, and then a politician, who, oh, by the way, is quite skilled in answering questions without answering questions, Mm -hmm. uh, says something to your first question, and then we just move along. It's the absolute worst thing that we can do. Mm -hmm. This is most relevant when you see TV reporters ask questions, Mm -hmm. uh, and they have a time element issue that I get. Uh, But to me... It's that follow-up question uh, that says, hey, wait a second, you didn't answer that question. And that dovetails into what I would also say. It's oftentimes not the first story you do. It's the second story that you do that says, hey, wait a second. You know, I reported all of this, and now I've got to go dig in, uh, you know, a little bit deeper, you know, into into this thing. I mean, you know, that's sort of kind of what happened with the... Uh, mayor's 117% pay increase. Mm-hmm. I mean, we did a story on it. It was a good story. But both follow-up stories and uh, the, col- the subsequent columns that I did on that issue, were those were the things that I felt were the most important to that story, mm-hmm. that you just don't let that story die on the vine. Uh, you know, hey, I reported it. Okay, What's next? Mm-hmm. No, that's not the way it works. You reported it, and then you stay after it. Mm-hmm. If I had, if I had, to identify the single biggest criticism of my columns, it would be that I was on topics that people felt like I spent too much time on them, mm-hmm. and I would concede that I was relentless on some of these topics. A lot of people look at that as a bad word. I look at it as a uh, as a good word. You can't let up you uh, on things that need to be reported on and commented on. I think you have to stay after it. People have a very short memory, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what politicians want you to do. You know, hey, it was in yesterday's paper. That's in the trash. It's done. Mm-hmm. You know, let's move along. And journalists have to have the wherewithal to not necessarily move along and say, "I'm done with that." Sure. You heard it. We got to keep doing dogged, focused reporting. So, you, for people listening that uh, haven't heard yet, when is your last day here? Uh, last day, if my calendar is correct, is the seventeenth. There's going to be. Uh, I, I've been working with uh, Jody uh, Campbell, community relations here at the Columbian. Uh, sort of a an opportunity to let me say thank you. Uh, to the community for those, mm-hmm. uh, for everybody, those mm-hmm. who supported me, those who didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I think, is the next day on the 18th, but my last day is the, last day as editor is the 17th. Gotcha. Well, I think, is there anything else you want to ask? I feel like that's a really good note yeah. to end it on. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Lou, and I can't wait to read your stuff that you're going to be contributing later on. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that, and you guys keep on keeping on because it's uh, it's the uh, uh, relentless young journalists who not only hold the community accountable, but holds the newspapers accountable. That's there's nothing more important. Mm-hmm. So now for the end of the uh, show, we're going to talk with Ashley Swanson to figure out what is going on out in Clark County this weekend and some fun things that you guys might want to do. And at this point, we're going to actually turn to you guys for help because we're trying to come up with a name for this segment of the show. Uh, I tossed out a few dumb ideas. Katie and Ashley both had smarter ideas, (laughs) but not that much smarter. So we turn to you, listeners. Give us ideas for what we should call this. Can you beat... We're debating between Ashley's corner. Ashley sits in a corner of the <laughs> office, so it's so it's appropriate. Um, true. Uh, the w- weekends with a- weekends at Ashley's. Mm-hmm. Weekends with Ashley's. Mm-hmm. Hanging with Ashley. <laughs> Hanging with Ashley. Mm-hmm. We got options. Yeah. We, we got options. I don't know if they're great options, <laughs> but they are options. It's true. Ashley, do you have any suggestions for what you want the segment to be called? Uh, I I'm always bad about that, but mm. you know it's it's the weekend section. I have a name. It's things to do. So I feel like you very politely sat here while Katie and I put like little tiny hats on you. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I'm I'm one of those internet cats that just kind of glare at you as you put little hats on them. Yeah. 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 So anyway, you've been working as 
hard as can be in the last few days to come up with a list, a golden list of good events happening around the county. It's true, and it's always interesting. So uh, what, what we're kind of leading off this week in the weekend section is the Banff Mountain Film Festival is coming to the Kiggins Theater Friday and Saturday. And so it's a big film festival that takes place up in Canada in near Alberta, I believe, and they basically do a bunch of wonderful outdoor documentary films and they highlight uh, extreme sports like mountain climbing and racing down cliffs. And I'm really excited for this this film festival, actually. Yeah, and what's great is like I was looking at the, the films that are playing and like some of the photos from them and they're just gorgeous. Like they're just photo stills from some of the films. Um, but just the, the scope of it is kind of awe-inspiring. And what's cool too is uh, a bunch of the films will actually involve dogs this year. So there's like uh, yes. dog sports, like machine, and then there's a dog that partners with his human and runs up mountains and, and things like that. Is there going to be any dog? Like, will there be any dogs there? I don't think there will be dogs there, but like, there will uh. be very cute dogs on a giant movie screen. So, when the Banff Mountain Film Festival came to Redding, California, they had a zip line that ran mm. from the historic theater, the roof of the historic theater, to the ground. Which I don't. I mean, I can't. Like, is that even up to code? Like, I'm not. I wasn't so sure about that. Do, is there anything like that this weekend? <laughs> will we have a zip line from the Kiggins? I don't think so. But uh. that would be great. But what's cool is like the source. Um, Climbing Center is right across from the Kiggins. Oh, perfect. So, you know, you watch people, like, climb uh, up giant cliff sides, and then you can go try it and maybe not succeed. But it'll be fun. But it'll be okay, because it'll be a source, so it's much safer. (laughs) Yeah, so that's that's, uh, Friday and Saturday. Uh, Different films both days. What Um, time does that start? 7 p.m., and tickets are 20 uh, for each day or 36 for a pass, for the two-day pass. And does that include any, uh, because Kiggins has beer and wine, Mm -hmm. do you get a little drink for the entry price or is it just entry to the show i think it's just entry to show but don't quote me on that (laughs) (laughs) um but what's cool too is if you can't make it to the kiggins uh the revolution hall in portland will be showing it later in the week too so if you can't if you already got weekend plans but you still want to check it out there's other options cool what's next uh richfield they do a fun thing called first saturday and it's kind of like a community event party and so this weekend is uh their tailgate party and so they're gonna have flag football they're gonna do a chili contest they're just gonna have a lot of football themed fun so if you're a football fan and don't really feel like watching the super bowl but still want to (laughs) participate you can head out to ridgefield and have fun in overlook park there'll be um vendors and farmers markets and an outdoor beer garden and and just kind of a fun community community atmosphere of course you can do because that's on saturday Mm -hmm. right so what time does that start 11 to 3 so get your football fix on saturday Mm -hmm. watch the super bowl sunday so you can just do it all um what else is kind of fun is so every first friday of the month which this friday will be um the art galleries in vancouver um kind of do a little celebration of their this month's show um and i think a lot of people don't know that we have a lot of interesting artists in the area and they do a lot of really cool things Cart College, their um, art club is having a big old show about narrative artwork, and that'll be at Boomerang in um, downtown Vancouver. And this is, is all part of the First Friday events? Yeah, so those run from about 5 to 9 in downtown Vancouver, and you just wander through the galleries, kind of have a fun time. It's a self-guided tour. Um, it, people really are excited to see other people, so it's fun. Yeah, I've been to a couple First Friday events, and it's pretty, we have some pretty incredible local artists, and that whole main, I haven't been to the Camus one, but that whole Main Street drag, um, uh, in Vancouver. I mean, there's so many little galleries there, and a lot of really, really cool work, and, you know, some people have pretzels, so there's that, but that's one of my favorite things about First Friday, is all the great snacks and wine and beer floating around. Um, yeah, if if people haven't gone to First Friday yet, they really should. I think it's a really great opportunity to actually see how much is going on, uh, as subtle as it may be, how much is happening in downtown Vancouver. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, oh, I'm going to go to this place, and then you just start wandering around and see where you end up and what you find. And, and Exactly. And that's free, right? I mean, you're just oh, yeah. wandering in and out. So what a great, you know, start at, like, mm-hmm. Thai Orchid and then mm-hmm. start making your way down Main Street. Mm-hmm. And- 
that's, that's what I would cool. do. And then if, if people are, are looking to go across the river this week and continuing in the art vein, um, the Portland Art Museum has two big exhibits. Uh, one is on Rodin, who is the French sculptor, Ooh. and it's highlighting all his um, work on human pieces. So he became a really amazing sculptor, not just because he was capturing the likeness of people, but because he was also capturing kind of emotions. Like you'll look at his work and it'll be like showing angst or sadness or rage um, through a very... Uh, non-forgiving medium of bronze and clay. So that just opened up at the Portland Art Museum. Um, there is also another exhibit featuring African-American artists. So cool. they, they got together um, 80 contemporary African-American artists to discuss kind of um, representation, race, and identity. And then they're comparing oh, wow. that with historic work from like the 1930s through um, the civil rights movement. So it's kind of a interesting sort of back and forth of, you know, what how do we represent ourselves and things like that? And what is representation? What is good or bad? Um, and what's great with the Portland Art Museum on Fridays from five to eight, it's just five bucks to get in. Oh, it's happy hour. Yeah. That's awesome. That is a steal. Cause usually it's 20 bucks a, a mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, so it's always fun. Uh, they do that every Friday. It's just $5 to get in to kind of encourage that. It's been a kind of quiet week. A lot of people are probably going to be prepping for the Super Bowl, at least just to watch the commercials. Um, I always do that with friends and have it muted and then just lay over color commentary. The only other event that I have is starting on Monday, February 6th, uh, Noir Nights returns at the Kiggins. So uh, Niche Wine cool. Bar and the Kiggins Theater are showing film noirs and they'll give you a wine tasting to kind of pair with what film you're doing. I love film noir. Oh, and it, and this time, this, this three movie series will be all about Orson Welles. Ooh. Cool. which is even better. Cool. So they're starting off with The Third Man, which is um, just an Orson Welles. He just starred in it. But he stars as a guy um, who gets killed, and his friend is convinced that there was someone else in the room when mm. his friend was killed. Um, so there's a third man, he thinks, but it's all uh, conspiracy theory and all in his head. Can I just say Orson Welles is probably the coolest Orson in history? <laughs> Agreed. I mean, there's what, Orson Redenbacher, the popcorn guy? That's Orville. Oh, shoot. <laughs> probably the coolest Orville. <laughs> <laughs> just have Orson and Orville mm -hmm. just hanging out mm -hmm. in the movies. <laughs> that would be really funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then the other two movies in the series is uh, The Lady in Shanghai, which mm -hmm. is great. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, my personal favorite, Touch of Evil, mm. which will be in April. Um, that is just a classic movie of corruption, if you enjoy corruption. Isn't Wayne's World coming back to the Kiggins here pretty soon? It is, February 7th and 8th. So excited about that. Yeah, I think uh, the Kiggins and the Camus Liberty will be doing uh, Wayne's World. A lot of the independent theaters Excellent. are. Um, and Camus Liberty, there will be an article actually about a, a bunch of its um, great kind of cultural events that they're showing on the screen. So they do everything from Russian ballet to uh, London um, theater from the West End, and they show it all on the screens out in Camus. So Scott Hewitt will have an article on that, um, I think, in Friday's paper. That's great. Again, so many things to do. How does one decide? So Follow your heart. Well, all right. Thanks for coming on and filling us in with all the good stuff to do this weekend. Yeah, the more you know. <laughs> That was a good show. Yeah, that was a good show. I what are you doing? I this think weekend? all of our shows are good They're shows. All good shows. Yeah, um, I'm gonna exercise. That's Definitely, good. I'm going to do that. You know what I really want to do, and I've been putting it off for two weeks in a row. What's that? Uh, this is the this is sort of the off season for kayaking, unless you want to go Ooh. get really cold. Yeah, I mean you can go this time of year, but it's just cold. Right. So there's a lot of pool sessions open up right now where you can just bring your boat in and work on your roll and do some braces and you know practice practice. Like in a pool, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. That's a thing. Where? Uh, there's numerous pools around the area. Oh, neat. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. There's just a, there's a bunch of community pools that do this. They open up their pool for a couple hours, right. um, a day Very or two cool. a week. And a lot of that happens on the weekend. So I'm going to go. I really want to bring my playboat down. And uh, there's a couple. Yeah, I have a playboat and I have a creek boat. So what's a playboat? A playboat is um, it's sort of shaped like a clog, like uh -huh. it's very rounded. Oh, and it, it's really rolly. It likes to be all tipsy. Uh huh. And 
the reason is the reason why it's called a playboat because you can play in it by oh. doing like front flips and back flips and twists and it's all about like those boats are designed for like catching waves in the river and uh-huh. like surfing them and doing tricks oh okay spinning around they're really fun cool so how about you what do you got in mind for the uh, weekend i am actually getting a massage on saturday wow yep our insurance covers massages so bam yep so getting that done sweet and we May have some other things coming up this weekend. So yeah. Maybe we'll share kind of the story about that in a later podcast. Okay. How it goes. So, Lots um, of good stuff. And next week, we are looking at Vancouver kind of past, present, and future. We're yeah. going to take a look at. You are working on a story right now about the 100th anniversary of the I-5 bridge. That's right. The I-5 bridge has kept at 100. You do <laughs> a lot of those. <laughs> Stop it. I do. I do do a lot of lookbacks. And what I, one thing that I'm really looking forward to is being done with doing lookback stories. Yeah. It's just like, I think I got here when all of these... Anniversaries uh, were converging. Yes. And For those of you that don't know, newspapers love fives and zeros in terms of anniversaries. And then we're going to sit down with Chad Eichen, who works in community development over Mm -hmm. at the city of Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And he is going to talk to us about kind of what's going on downtown there's a lot of development we got new apartments coming in and mm-hmm. then we have of course the massive waterfront talks hotels project. getting developed hotels yeah all kinds of stuff going on downtown vancouver there is i love that willamette was it willamette week that did a story about like 100 the, things to love about portland and it included our waterfront yeah it doesn't really exist yet totally so totally so. stay tuned Thanks for listening. Get in touch with us if you want to talk to us and tell us how we did. Tell us what we should do or didn't do. Subscribe and uh, tell your friends to listen to us. You can get in touch at podcasts at Columbian.com. It seems like a lot of you guys like to reach out directly to Katie and myself. And so if that's how you feel like you want to get in touch, that's great too. That's also fine. Our contact information is at Columbian.com. You can find this podcast at Columbian.com on the homepage every Thursday. Mm -hmm. It's also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Yep. Thanks a lot. See you later.